Hey, can I ask Dr. Peter Reynolds to come on up? And we'll interview Peter and Margaret on Sunday, but I, I will just say a few things about uh, my, my good friend, Dr. Reynolds. who he, uh, I met Peter at Covenant Seminary, and Peter, years before, had become a believer through the Navigator Ministry, and um, then went on to Westminster Seminary and pastored and pl- church planted uh, for 17 years in New Zealand, came and studied at Covenant Seminary, did a doctorate, went back and was the president of Grace Theological College in Auckland, and then he and Margaret also counseled for how many years and still continue to counsel for many, many moons. And Peter has been pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Auckland uh, for some time, and you retired from that ministry in June. In June. Yeah. So it, we're just really thankful for them to come, and Peter and Margaret just have years of faithful gospel ministry, and thank you for coming and opening God's Word to us. Well, thank you, Rusty. After an introduction like that, I can hardly wait to hear what I'm going to say. (laughs) Well, it is a joy to be here in Dothan, and uh, I think uh, Margaret and I have fallen in love with the city already. We feel very much at home, and and uh, it really is a delightful place with many, many delightful people like yourselves. And you've given us a wonderful welcome. And uh, we feel very blessed of the Lord to be here with you. Well, <clears throat> what we're going to be doing uh, uh, tonight and again on Sunday morning is, is looking in the book of Acts around this theme of the gospel goes global. And we're going to do a, uh, a skim and dip through the book of Acts, and see if we can't learn some lessons for missions, both local and distant mission, lessons that were the Holy Spirit taught to the the believers in the New Testament church. And I trust that our time together will be a blessing and an encouragement. So if you have your Bibles there, you might like to follow with me as uh, we go through, uh, beginning, of course, with Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which uh, sets the agenda for the spread of the gospel from uh, Jerusalem to the world. The gospel goes global in the book of Acts. Acts 1, 8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus left us in no doubt that he intended his gospel to be a global message for all peoples. Well, the book of Acts opens with a question by the disciples just as Jesus was about to leave them, uh, there in verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This was their chief concern. They were not thinking of a global message. They were not thinking of themselves as global messengers. They had a very uh, stay-at-home view of the ministry of Jesus and the significance of the ministry of Jesus. They wanted to keep it 
within the confines of the ancient nation of Israel. Would this be the time now that God would restore to the nation of Israel the Davidic kingdom they had lost? Verse 7, Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you. Whatever God's secret plans and decrees are, there is no question, there is no ambiguity, there is no doubt, there is no hesitation in knowing what God has for you, my disciples, says Jesus in verse 7. Yes, the kingdom of Israel will be restored, but not in the way that you imagine, not in the way that you have put your question. It will be restored only as you witness to me the one who has brought the kingdom of God in Holy Spirit power. And as the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and believed, so the kingdom of God is established throughout the world by the power of God's Holy Spirit. That's how the gospel goes global. And that's the part that we have in it. So you might be sitting here tonight and you're uh, listening to all these wonderful people talk about the ministries that God has given them and you might be thinking to yourself, well, you know, I'm just happy, I'm just happy being here at uh, First Presbyterian Dothan and um, I'm not really that concerned about what happens beyond the city of Dothan or beyond the state of Alabama or beyond the country of America. I'm just quite happy with the way things are going. And Jesus, gracious and loving and tender and kind answer to your heart tonight is, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses here, yes, but to the very ends of the earth. The kingdom of God is established globally in the context of gospel proclamation when the gospel is heard and believed. So the Holy Spirit seals to himself many myriad of people for everlasting salvation. It's not in the context of Israel under the old covenant. It's in the context of the church as the new Israel, the new covenant established by Jesus Christ. So that's why the book of Acts focuses on gospel preaching and church planting. So the gospel begins in Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jews, and goes all the way to Rome, the capital city of the Gentiles. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, it is significant that the Holy Spirit fell on the new church at Pentecost. Pentecost was the time of first fruits harvest. The idea of the first fruit is that the first fruit indicates that a full harvest is coming. Those who possess the first fruit are eagerly awaiting the full harvest. The first fruit is the guarantee. It's the down payment. The first fruit is the down payment, the guarantee that the full harvest is coming. We know when spring comes in Auckland, 
and the daffodils first appear. They're the first spring flowers we see in our garden. When we see the daffodils, we know that the magnolias are coming. (laughs) And sure enough, the magnolia tree in the backyard will bloom because we've seen the daffodils. We go from first fruits, we await the full harvest. The first fruit is the guarantee that the full harvest is coming. You see, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit's coming at Pentecost does not rescue us from the groaning of this world. But it does point us forward to the full harvest. So with the first fruits of Holy Spirit's power upon us, we go in response to Christ's commission with the gospel to the whole world. And as we go, we suffer. As we go, we go weeping. We bear the wounds. We bear the scars as we heard testimony tonight. This is a painful and dangerous and and, and Paul himself, you know, he bore that. But why, why is it possible, my friends, to continue in the face of such suffering and hardship? Because we know the full harvest is coming. The end is not in doubt. And when that full harvest comes and the Lord Jesus returns in all his power and all his glory, he will gather from the north and the south and the east and the west. He will gather them by their hundreds and thousands and myriads so they will be an uncountable number, will be gathered in his presence, the full harvest of the gospel going global. It will be a global ingathering. The coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is the first fruits. The best is yet to come. So we want to say to our missionary friends tonight, the best is yet to come. Your labors are not in vain. The outcome is assured. The risen victorious Christ will have the final word. And it's what is coming that should exercise our hearts and minds as we we think about the challenges of global mission. The day of Pentecost is behind us as first fruits. We don't need to keep looking for repetitions of Pentecost. It's behind us as first fruits. The day of the Lord's return is ahead of us as full harvest. So no sooner were they baptized in the Holy Spirit than the apostles began to speak in many different human languages from Persia in the east to Rome in the west, from Asia in the north, to Arabia in the south. Right there, we see the globalization of the gospel, where the Holy Spirit will match the gospel message to the language of the hearer. The Holy Spirit will take that message that is proclaimed, that testimony that is shared, the Holy Spirit will take that, and he will interpret it to the heart of the listener so that they will hear it and receive it at their point of need. So if you have a non-Christian friend and you want to talk to them about Jesus, then it's very appropriate that you pray for the Holy Spirit to speak directly to their heart and give converting power to your words, just like the Holy Spirit did here on the day of Pentecost. And Sunday by Sunday, the wonders of God's grace in Jesus Christ are being proclaimed in many languages all over the world as the Holy Spirit empowers and enables for the converting of countless numbers of men and women, boys and girls. And so Luke begins counting them, 3,000 in chapter 2. 
5,000 in chapter 4. By the time he gets to chapter 6, he stopped counting. There's too many. And he just simply says, many more were coming to the faith. See, this is the beginning of full harvest. But with this remarkable harvest of souls comes a problem. With this remarkable harvest of souls comes a tension within the body of Christ. You see that in chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. In the midst of all this glory, all this glory of Holy Spirit enabling, all this glory of Holy Spirit conversions by the thousands and thousands, in the midst of all that glory, here was a quarrel about the food. Kind of brings you down to earth, doesn't it? What do we do with Christians who are different from us? This has always been an issue in the church. From Acts 6 to the present day, getting along with other Christians. If you like, it's an internal threat. It's an internal threat to the gospel going global. Now in the book of Acts, we see external threats against the church, persecution. But here's an internal threat, internal dissension. And this time it's a threat of discrimination against the lines of culture and language. Before the time of the Roman Empire, Alexander the Great uh, brought Greek language, culture, learning and religion to the Mediterranean and Persian world, such that the Greek language became the universal language of the day, much like English is for us. But in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Jews sought to maintain their Jewish way of life and temple traditions in the face of an overwhelming Greek culture and custom. So the Jews in Jerusalem continued to speak Aramaic, a language akin to Hebrew, rather than Greek. And they used a Hebrew version of the scriptures rather than a Greek one. However, the Jews that lived beyond Israel out in the world of the Roman Empire, spoke Greek and were more a part of Grecian society, custom, and culture, and they used a Greek translation of the scriptures in their synagogues. Imagine that. Way back then, there was arguments about which translation of the scriptures to use. (laughs) Some things never change. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So you see in 6.1, you see those labels there, Greek or Grecian Jews and Hebrew or Hebraic Jews. There were divisions of long-standing between the two. The Hebrew Jews thought of the Greek Jews as lax, secular and spiritual and tainted with Greek culture and beliefs. The Greek Jews regarded the Hebrew Jews as overly strict, conservative and picky and wedded to their temple rituals and traditions. How did Judaism deal with this problem? Well, Judaism dealt with the problem by worshipping separately, such that in the city of Jerusalem there were Greek-speaking synagogues using the Greek translation and there were Aramaic-speaking synagogues 
using the Hebrew Scriptures. Both committed to their own version of the Scriptures. At the festival of Pentecost, many Grecian Jews would come into the city of Jerusalem and the Hebraic Jews would tolerate them, put up with them and take their money from them because in a week or so, the Grecian Jews would return home and the Hebraic or Jerusalem Jews would settle back to their own way of seeing things and doing things. But this time, (laughs) this time the Holy Spirit had intervened. And the gospel had been proclaimed to everyone in the city. And many Grecian Jews and many Hebraic Jews became Christians. Rather than leaving the city, the newly converted Grecian Jews stayed on in the new church and began to fellowship with the Hebraic Jews who were also newly converted. Wow. There's a tinderbox ready to explode. And sure enough, it wasn't long before the old tensions began to surface. There was a cultural difference here that was dividing the fellowship of the new church that that threatened a division that threatened its continued growth. So faced with this internal threat to the new church, this cultural discrimination, what do the apostles do? What was their solution? Do they advocate the centuries-old solution of each worshipping separately in their own churches? Or synagogues? Churches? No. No. They said, that's not the answer. That's not the solution. Instead, they made arrangements for each to serve the other better. That was their solution, to do a better job of serving each other in spite of our differences. So do you know some Christians who are overly strict, conservative, and picky? How are you going to serve them? and show your love to them. Maybe hospitality. Maybe talking to them on Sunday morning. Maybe taking a personal interest in them and their families. Do you know some Christians who you see as lax and secular and unspiritual? In other words, different from you. How are you going to serve them and show your love to them? Maybe hospitality. Maybe talking to them on Sunday morning. Maybe taking a personal interest in them and their families. You see, as these two types of Christians begin to love and serve one another with genuine heart warmth, each will be encouraged to look at their own practice of the Christian faith and be open to be influenced by the other. And so the gospel will continue to have power among us. You see that in verse 7 of Acts 6. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The church in Jerusalem continued to grow strong as they learned how to serve one another. Strong in readiness for what was about to come. In uh, <clears throat> Luke chapter eight, uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. In some parts of the world today, the church is being scattered by persecution, just like it was here. 
And as the seed is scattered, it germinates and grows in new places of witness. While Saul and the Jewish leaders were seeking to destroy the church in Jerusalem, the church was spreading in Judea and Samaria. While bad things were happening over here, good things were happening over here, and God remained sovereign over both. This is the reality of global mission. And we know that today, don't we? We see the gospel receding and going backwards in some countries, and we see the gospel advancing with great speed in other countries. And we find ourselves wondering, why is that? Why, why isn't the gospel advancing on equal front everywhere? Why is it that it seems to, to go over here and not here, and then it, it recedes here and starts advancing over there, and, and then we read the book of Acts and we realize from the very beginning that's the way it was. While the gospel, uh, the church in Jerusalem was being destroyed, over here it was growing like wildfire in Judea and Samaria. That's the way it's going to be till Jesus comes back. That's the mystery of the Holy Spirit's work as it races through this world and through the hearts and lives of people. We can't contain it. We can't control it. We can't direct it. We can't say to God, God, you must be working here and, and it's okay for you to work over there, but you need to be working here as well. And God just says, trust me. Continue to labor in the field that I have given you and just trust me, the end is not in doubt, the full harvest is coming, but the reality is that the work of gospel mission advances in some places at the expense of others. Many people believe and are converted and are baptized in Judea and Samaria through the witness of the scattered church at the same time as the church in Jerusalem was suffering. Just look for a moment in Acts 8.25. When they, uh, when they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Just that last phrase there. Here's Peter and John preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now, I want you to think about that. And I want you to think about John chapter 4. Okay, you got me? You're with me now? John chapter 4. Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman at the well, and Peter and John, these same two guys, have been sent into the village to buy lunch and bring it back to Jesus. And in John 4, we're told that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So when Peter and John went into that village, they would have spoken to nobody. And they would have got their food, their hamburgers, their fish and chips, and they would have brought them out to the well to where Jesus was. They, would have, they wouldn't have invited anyone to come and see Jesus. They would not have spoken to anybody. In fact, they, they were slightly disapproving of Jesus talking to that woman. <laughs> you know how that story went, don't you? The woman went back into the village and they all came out to see Jesus at her invitation while the disciples were standing around looking like, what's going on here? They had no idea. But now, <laughs> Acts, chapter tw- uh, Acts chapter 8, Peter and John, those same two, are traveling through the Samaritan villages preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that make you want to rise up and praise God for the difference the Holy Spirit had made in the lives of those prejudiced, 
arrogant and uptight guys. They had been turned into suffering and effective servants of the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit. And here they were evangelizing the Samaritans and many of them were coming to Christ. That deserves a drink of water. Well, how are we going here? It's almost uh, supper time. Jesus Christ had broken down the ancient walls of hostility. The gospel was going global. Judea, Samaria, Caesarea, and even Ethiopia under the ministries of Philip and Peter. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As the church recedes in one place, it advances in another. This time, renewed persecution of the church of Jerusalem came not from the religious leaders, but from King Herod. This Herod was the nephew of the Herod who had put Jesus on trial about 10 years earlier. The disciples were generally held in high regard by the people in Jerusalem, so the religious leaders reluctantly left them alone. So they were delighted when Herod took it upon himself to move against the apostles and had James put to death. Now this James, we're told, is the brother of John. James and John, remember them? The sons of thunder. James and John. Remember Peter, James and John? Those three were the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, the ones closest to the Lord. So we might have expected, you see, to see this James advance in significant and lifelong ministry just like Peter and John. Peter, James, and John. There's kind of a ring to it, doesn't it? But now it's just Peter and John. It was not in God's sovereign purposes for this man. He was put to death so early on in the mission. So the message was clear. Not even the apostles are safe now. Soon they too will be scattered and Jerusalem emptied of Christians. So Herod went after Peter. And he threw Peter in jail with every expectation that he would do to him as he had done to James. So the Christians in the city began to pray, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And again in verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. The Christians in the city were praying. While they were praying, God acted. God acted while they were praying. Does that mean that if they hadn't prayed, God wouldn't have acted? You ever think about that? I think if they hadn't prayed, Peter might have ended up staying in prison. Did God wait for them to pray before he acted? If they hadn't prayed, would God have not acted? Was God sitting in heaven saying, I'd really like to set Peter free from jail, but those guys have to pray first? While they were praying, God acted. God chose the occasion of their prayers as the moment to carry out his own predetermined will. And to their great astonishment, they saw Peter released, verse 16. 
But Peter kept on knocking. Come on, you guys. Kept on knocking. When they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. These are the people that had been praying. We're told twice in the chapter they were praying. They were astonished when they saw him. This, why were they astonished? Was this not the answer they were expecting? Perhaps they had not been praying for Peter's release. Perhaps they had been praying for a quick and painless death like James got. Or perhaps they had been praying for but with faint hearts. Whatever was going on with their prayers, God answered their prayer. To their astonishment, God answered their prayer. Does God answer prayer? Yes, he does. Does God act freely in accordance with his own predetermined will? Yes, he does. Hence the mystery. For instance, he chose not to save James. No angel came for James like he did for Peter. And wasn't James one of the inner circle along with Peter and John? And doubtless these same people had been praying for James. Maybe that's why they were astonished to see Peter, because their prayers for James hadn't been answered. But now their prayers for Peter have, and they go, whoa, we can't deal with this. What's going on here? What's God about? And God says, I'm not going to tell you. Just keep praying, and I'll keep acting. I'll keep acting, and you keep praying. And the gospel will go global. What we see as answered prayer, God sees as his choosing to act when we pray to accomplish his own decreed purposes, not ours. He acts when we pray, and he acts when we don't pray. His freedom is absolute. Like the believers here in Acts 12, we might be astounded and astonished and bewildered and unbelieving, perhaps asking questions like, why Peter and not James? Yet the mystery of God's purpose continues on, resulting in his glory and the continued spread of his gospel word. Verse 17. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. And he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and he left for another place. Now that James there was not obviously the James that had been beheaded. That was the other James, the brother of Jesus, who was now the head of the Jerusalem church. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and he left for another place. He left for another place. Where did he go? Nobody knows. Perhaps James knew. He had a safe house, a safe place on account of Herod. He knew as soon as Herod knew he was gone, Herod would be scouring the city for him. So Peter had to leave and go to a secret place. Tell James. Perhaps James knew where it was. And Peter is now gone from the book of Acts. He makes a brief appearance at the great council in Acts 15, but apart from that, he is gone from the book of Acts. Does that mean the end of Peter's ministry? Does that mean the end of Peter's effectiveness? Shouldn't he have just stayed in Jerusalem and trusted that God would keep him safe from Herod? Why did he have to flee? Why did he have to go and and, and leave behind all those Christians and that new church? and, 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 And what happened to him and where did he go? Well, Peter wrote some letters, just like Paul wrote some letters. And just as Paul wrote letters to the Christians that he had ministered to, so Peter wrote letters to the Christians he had ministered to. Here's my final reference for you tonight is 1 Peter chapter 1.
1 Peter chapter 1. Here's Peter writing a letter, an epistle. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Isn't that a wonderful greeting? Chosen by God, sprinkled by the blood, sanctified by the Spirit. But where were they? Where were they living? They were living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Where was that? Well, you've got a picture in your mind of the land of Palestine. And you go north from the land of Palestine, and then you go left. You go left. And, and that's the Roman province of Asia, right? And you go north into the right, or if you like, northeast, and you come to Cappadocia and Bithynia. And Cappadocia and Bithynia ascended around what today is the city of Istanbul, Constantinople, the great center of the ancient Greek Orthodox Church one of the great bastions of the Christian gospel for many centuries until it fell to the armies of Islam. That's where Peter went. That's where Peter went and ministered. He went as far away from Herod as he could possibly get and still be within the Roman Empire. And there, look at the effect of ministry that he had. All those different places. There were churches, there were Christians. A place that Paul never went to. Remember at one stage there, Paul wanted to go into Bithynia and the Holy Spirit said, no. Peter's there. Paul wanted to go south into Asia. The Holy Spirit said, no, John's going to be there. John will take care of Asia. Ephesus, you know, seven churches. Peter and Bithynia, Paul had to go west. All that to say, you see, God is sovereign when it comes to the globalization of the gospel. He will send people where he wants them to go, and they may be driven through persecution or other circumstances, but wherever they are, if there's a gospel to proclaim, there are people to be saved, and where there are people to be saved, there are churches to be planted. So here he is as an old man, writing letters to people who have been chosen by God, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, in the far, far northern eastern corner of the Roman Empire. The gospel is going global. Well, what have we seen already tonight? As the gospel goes global, we've seen the importance of prayer. No matter how faint-hearted we are, we've seen the importance of prayer. We've also seen the importance of serving one another so that united we can support the advance of the gospel. And we have seen the importance of trusting God in times of hardship and setback that even though there are tough times and the church suffers and the gospel advance seems to slow down, the full harvest is not in doubt. So now, in the book of Acts, the gospel has taken on Judea and Samaria. It's now poised to take on Asia and Greece, and that's where we shall go on Sunday morning. So you all come back now. Let's pray together.
Father God, we are in awe of your great and mighty works. As we look back on 2,000 years of gospel history in advance, we are in awe of the lessons that you have taught us again and again and again in the history of your church. And Father God, we thank you that we are gathered here tonight because the work of your Holy Spirit has come upon us. We've put our faith in Jesus. We've been sprinkled by the blood, sanctified by the Spirit, chosen by you, Father God. And we ask that as we stand together as your people, here in this place, that many more would, would, would join the ranks of those who are going with the gospel, going either to Dothan or beyond with the gospel of Jesus Christ and with the confidence in their heart that the first fruits have been given, the full harvest is coming, and there will be many, 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 the ones whom Christ's death has ransomed, who will stand before the throne as a result of our faithfulness to bring the gospel to the hearts and lives of many. Father, we thank you for our time this evening. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.